You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gervais, and I am the host of the show. I'm thrilled to have my guest today, Sally Norton. Sally holds a nutrition degree from Cornell University and a master's degree in public health. Her path to becoming a leading expert on dietary oxalate includes a prior career working at major medical schools in medical education and public health research. Her personal healing experience inspired years of research that led her to her book. Toxic Superfoods, How Oxalate Overload is Making You Sick and How to Get Better, which was released in 2023 and is available everywhere books are sold. Sally, welcome to Food Integrity Now. What a delight to be with you. It is amazing to be with you because I am thrilled to share with our listeners what I have read in your book, Toxic Superfood, all about oxalates. And I'm a holistic nutritionist, and I really knew nothing about this subject. A friend of mine just graduated from functional nutrition school recently, and I called her up and I said, do you know about oxalates? Did they teach you that in your class? Because my school was a while ago. She said, no, I've never heard about it. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. So this is really eye-opening. So we're we're all being left ignorant of this topic because it's not in the textbooks of your doctor, your functional nutritionist, anywhere you might turn, it's not in our textbooks. We're not being taught about it. Wow, that's this is crazy. So let's just dive in here. What are oxalates? <laughs> oxalates are natural compounds in typical foods that everybody eats that have problem effects on our body. So say more about that. Are they a chemical? Why are they there? Well, the plants and and they actually oxalic acid is the parent molecule, which is a two carbon, uh, highly oxygenated molecule has four oxygens on these little two carbons. So it's an organic acid that easily forms in nature. It's so small. It's just all over in nature and plants deliberately produce oxalic acid and build crystals with it called calcium oxalate crystals. Uh, For lots of different reasons, the plants will need it. The funguses in the soil produce an awful lot of it. Clouds in the sky full of pollution will accidentally produce it. And the way the plants often produce oxalic acid in the crystals is they first produce vitamin C. And ascorbic acid easily degenerates into oxalate, which has repercussions for us and our vitamin C uh, intake as well, because it can become oxalate in the body also. But plants need oxalic acid for lots of reasons, and they like it in the form of calcium oxalate. It's It does that easily because oxalic acid is a chelator, meaning grabber of minerals. And it's always in nature got one free negative charge because it drops its little hydrogen, which is a protein proton molecule. And so it's always reactive because it's got a positive charge and it's looking for something or with a negative charge and it's looking for something that has the positive charge. And then it can drop the other proton it has and have two positive charges, which is a perfect fit for calcium. Calcium is um, got two positive charges. The oxalate has two negative charges. I think I've been misspeaking all along with my (laughs) positives, but you'll get the picture that we have a negative and positive 
bond here that holds them together. So when you have oxalic acid bonding with calcium, we call it calcium oxalate, and this stuff tends to salt out, precipitate out of solution into crystals. Uh, and that becomes in the body kidney stones, which is well known. Um, humanity's had kidney stone issues for a long time. <laughs> Certain subset, 12 to 15% of us are prone to kidney stones. Wow. And the rest of us have kidneys that somehow manage to handle oxalic acid and the oxalate crystals that it forms in the urine without getting kidney stones. But what we're not being taught about oxalate is that it, when we're eating oxalic acid from plants, it gets into the bloodstream, it floats around from your gut to your liver, through your bloodstream, it's affecting your white blood cells, your red blood cells. It goes through your critical organs of not just your digestive tract, but straight to the liver, into your heart, into your lungs. It does that right away after a meal. It takes a while though for it to be absorbed. But anyway, the oxalic acid becomes stones in more places than just the kidneys. The kidneys are the last stop because the kidneys remove it from the body. But in the meantime, oxalate went from your mouth to your liver, to your heart, to your lungs, to your whole vascular system and travels throughout the body and gets caught up in tissues because the blood is delivering oxygen and nutrients and oxalate because the liver doesn't take it away. People think the liver detoxes toxins and takes them out of the blood, but it doesn't with oxalate. In fact, the liver makes more. So oxalic acid is so much in nature. It's in our own nature to produce a very small amount of it, which is why we're built to handle oxalate because a little bit is part of our metabolism and part of why we have kidneys and need to pee. But what can happen now is that we're pushing plant foods that contain high levels of oxalate, like spinach. And nowadays you're able to eat these high oxalate foods every day from the first bite of solid food, because one of the early baby foods these days is sweet potatoes, which is a great example of a high oxalate food. And then we're, we graduate to peanut butter and other forms of white potatoes, like potato chips and French fries, and then chocolate. And these foods are childhood foods. And then as adults, we get all sophisticated and we start eating spinach salad and spinach smoothies and Swiss chard and beet greens and other high oxalate foods, which include things like bran, whole wheat bread, and then the gluten substitute foods that we didn't used to eat much of. But if you go off gluten foods, you tend to eat things like quinoa, buckwheat, teff, arrowroot, cassava. These are new things. All of these foods are actually quite new to the human diet. We're not built for huge amounts of oxalate. You know, you have just named some of my favorite foods. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I I mean, (laughs) beet greens, absolutely love them. I grew up on them. Swiss chard. uh, I live on an organic farm and Mm. we grow a lot of this stuff. It's very easy to grow. And sweet potatoes, sweet potatoes. I love, I probably eat two a week, but the biggest disappointment for me is blackberries. We also grow blackberries and they are the best things I've ever put in my mouth. And I eat a lot of them. Yeah. And I think that used to be considered a very seasonal activity. And now we have more and more ways to extend the season and have them all the time. And, you know, blackberry jam, frozen blackberries, throw them in smoothies. I only eat them when we grow them. So, but I eat a lot of them, like a cup full. (laughs) Yeah. And that's enough to start being a problem. 
I I grew up on these foods too. And I've always been a vegetable junkie since I was a little girl. And we grew, we loved our summer beet greens with a little baby beets on the end. We'd pick them when the beets were tiny. And my dad would teach me to put vinegar on it. And that's what made it taste good. And, you know, I was like geeking out on these foods, (laughs) all of them, including citrus peel, which is another kind of sneaker food that's high in oxalate. My grandfather made fantastic Swiss style Christmas stolen every year. And I would like down as many of those. <laughs> he would jam in as much fruit as he could get. And I just grew up, you know, I come home from high school and I'd make myself a big pint of iced tea, instant iced tea, and sit there and watch a soap opera, drinking down oxalates. Like it's really easy to have these foods become daily staples. And when I got off my vegan thing, I started using sweet potatoes as my staple for starch. And I was eating massively large sweet it minimum of one a day, usually for breakfast, most days, and often with dinner, most days, like I loved sweet potatoes. And that when I started doing that, I started having problems. But I, why would I associate my wonderful low allergy, sweet potato, which was getting gluten out of my diet and getting other toxins on the diet? Why would I ever connect the addition of sweet potatoes as a staple to pain in the rhomboids that prevented me from sleeping, lumps on my head, wrinkles appearing on my face, age spots appearing on my skin. All kinds of problems were happening that were wrecking my sleep, increasing my pain and aging me rapidly. I never thought I I wouldn't have guessed in a million years because of my lack of education. So that brings me to the question of how did you find out about oxalate? So tell us about your journey a little bit more. Well, um, I occasionally would have, you know, really since I was fairly young woman, I was having yeast infection problems and then I've had periodic things that sort of like crotch issues, itchy crotch here and there and blood blister and things like this. And I never knew that there was a real problem, but at one point I had three days in a row of basically what you might call vulvodynia with some pretty intense burning and itching and uncomfortable issues down there. And it was so bad that I just, and I said into the air, I said, God, take these away. I don't need genitals anymore. I was really over it in just three little days. And my husband did a web search and found that there is a vulvar pain foundation in North Carolina, like 40 minutes from where I used to live and work and just three hours from where I live now. And I never knew about them, which really saddened me because I had put together a whole integrative medicine conference in 2005. And my focus was toxins. And I had Doris Rapcom and Jim Oshman, who's the energy guy who does the grounding work and wanted to feature featured issues with endometriosis and how toxins affect them. It was really doing a sort of toxin centric integrative medicine conference that also was about, you know, grass fed meat and properly grown food. And I would have invited her to this conference because I would have definitely wanted people to know that there's a toxin in plants that can give you pelvic pain. Um, And they have some very interesting claims that I didn't, it didn't make sense to me what she was teaching, that you could change your diet and you could remove pelvic pain for men and women. You could fix connective tissue problems and fibromyalgia and some autoimmune related things that involve connective tissue. They were saying all these things and it didn't add up because in school, 
they said oxalate was causing kidney stones and causing low calcium in the body and depleting your diet of calcium. And you just, you know, you just didn't have oxalate, you didn't have tea because of the tannins and the oxalate with dinner, you know, things like that I learned in school, but none of the things I knew about oxalate had anything to do with pain syndrome. So I was desperate enough to buy her materials and try to learn it and pay attention and learn where oxalates really were in my diet because my textbooks were useless. The problem is, is that I didn't know about this accumulation problem. So when you're like me and you grow up on sweet potatoes, and well, I grew up on the, the beet greens and then I adopted sweet potatoes in my early 30s, I did not understand that there's not just kidney stones where you accumulate oxalates, but you accumulate oxalates all over your body. And when you stop eating oxalates, you haven't stopped your oxalate problem. You have started an oxalate reduction program. And mm. that is nowhere in the literature either that dietary levels of oxalate can, can contribute to a bodily accumulation of oxalate, which is called oxalosis. And the whole idea that you can create a systemic toxicity disorder from overeating oxalates is nowhere to be found in the literature. So I didn't understand that. And the Volver Pain Foundation did not understand the accumulation problem occurs with this dietary, you know, pain and inflammation syndrome that they identified. Wow. So anyway, it took me three more years to realize that I really did need this low oxalate diet because I didn't. Also, I had a rash when I first stopped eating the sweet potatoes and chard when I learned from the Volvo Pain Foundation. I had this big rash. But again, I did not connect that to the change in my diet. But it turned out that that was a reaction to the sudden abrupt withdrawal of these high oxalate foods from my diet. It's kind but, of like a detox symptom or? Yeah, it turns okay. on your immune system. Your immune system is responsible for getting rid of oxalate. And when the body goes, oh my gosh, you're out of the blackberry patch, it's finally a break here. The body takes great advantage of this little window you create. Like, okay, raspberry season's over, sweet potato season's over, Swiss chard season's over. Because I, I do believe that historically we would never been able to eat oxalate every day of the year. In the wintertime, we'd be reliant on fishing and hunting and primarily non-plant foods. And, um, you know, we were, have a long history of living in the ice age. So there just weren't a lot of broccoli bushes around in the day for like a million years, we would always have an annual clean out. So if we did have a blackberry season, you know, pre-industry, pre-railroads, pre-roadways, pre-refrigerated trucks, pre-California, we didn't have this constant availability to edible plant foods. Nature itself doesn't have rows and rows of broccoli and spinach plants. It's got pine trees and pine needles. Yeah. <laughs> Basically poisonous plants are the majority. We forget that all plants fundamentally have to have some degree of toxicity in order to survive nature. Right. That's, that's very interesting. I interviewed a woman who, um, the name of the book escapes me right now, it's been about 10 years, but she did a lot of research on the phytonutrients in plants. And one of the thing, things she did was she educated us about how when you buy, for example, you buy lettuce, 
and um, it, it creates those phytonutrients to ward off pests and things like that. Mold, mold all those things. Insects, but but her that. contention was we get the advantage of those phytonutrients because, you know, the fresher the food was, obviously. And, but she really talked about, you know, how to buy certain foods so you maintain the phytonutrients and stuff. That it's very, very enlightening. Well, that theory is really one of these dragons we have to slay in our thinking that the the current research is slaying, but we don't notice it because it really was sort of a back of the envelope summary on early research in the 70s and 80s, finding these plant chemicals and calling them. I don't know who added the term nutrient to it because none of them have ever been proven to be an essential nutrient that we need. The essential nutrients are minerals and vitamins, right? Mm -hmm. And there may be room for discovering, like they didn't understand how important choline was in the day when I was in school, but it's very clear now that choline is kind of like a B vitamin that's in eggs. Mm -hmm. It's an emulsifying fatty mm -hmm. molecule. But um, the idea that plant compounds have antioxidant effects for plants and somehow that's an antioxidant effect for us because if you put it in a Petri dish with some cells, it has a certain effect on them. That is not working out in our actual biology. What, what's going on is quite a different story than that. But we, we were told that, that we need to stop inflammation and oxidative stress and that we should sop up the oxidative stress and somehow these plant compounds do that for us. Well, that's not really the truth. The truth is we need to stop doing the things that cause the oxidative stress, like eating too much oxalates. And we need to understand that those molecules are turning on our own powers of antioxidant antioxidant effects are actually the body's response to a trigger a stressor these chemicals can be stressors that tell the body do more antioxidant stuff for me not that they directly are having that effect so much so really these plant compounds in order for them to work for us you have to have the right mixtures of these compounds, which you can't necessarily control when you're just eating whole foods. They're gonna come in a whole mixture of them that you, maybe someday we could breed if we knew what they were, but we don't really know which mixtures of tannins, for example, we tolerate or that are just pure poison. And then you have to have the right bacteria to break it down properly. And then you have to have the right genetics to affect right. the way you absorb it and the way you use it. So we don't know the mixture of the compounds that might be beneficial. We don't know the mixture of gut bacteria that might help that be beneficial. And we don't know what genetics are required to take advantage of it. So theoretically, there's some chance that that could work. But in real life, it makes no sense because we have no control over any of those things. You don't control the plant compounds. You don't control your microbiome very easily. That's your body's doing that. And your genetics are something that were handed to you. So that begs the question, you know, we're all different. Everybody is different. We have different genetics. We have different things that we can tolerate or not tolerate. Are there some people that can eat higher amounts of oxalates and be okay? Of course, uh, we see this in, in truth. And it's very possible that anyone eating a high amount of oxalate would feel better without them. It's just wow. like anyone tolerating a high degree of mercury or lead would feel better without it. Yeah. 
And I've had an example, just a client today was saying that her husband had absolutely no issues that he was aware of. He was extremely skeptical about oxalate and all the stuff she's saying it was affecting her. Um, but he had to adopt her diet just out of practicality because she was eating a low oxalate diet and just made sense to just eat the same food. And he ended up having crystals appear on his skin of the body. That's one of the reactions that some people get. A m- minority of people go on a low oxalate diet, start shedding stuff off their skin as white dust or, you know, grit, frank crystals. And now he's really excited about being on this diet because his energy is so much better. She says he feels like he wants to go to the gym every day. And he didn't know that he could feel better than he already felt. He thought he was fine on high oxalate foods, but just as part of the marital, you know, partnership, he went ahead and did it and discovered this was also good for him. Wow. So is this information controversial? Do you get much pushback? And who do you get that pushback from? Primarily from people who've already committed to a certain philosophy, either ideologically about their nutrition or ideologically about what's moral to eat, because they feel like if you can't, and I'm not saying you can't be a vegetarian, you can be a vegetarian and be on a low oxalate diet. It's just hard to do. And it's, you're, better off, including foods that have no oxalate that are nutritious and easy to digest. And that is animal foods. So the animal food thing is very uh, third rail hot topic right now. There's a lot of banging of drums and chests about how evil it is to eat animal foods. And anyone who's saying that not in my world, not in my (laughs) world, it's, it's, it's important uh, for most people to eat hundred percent grass fed and finished. It has to be, uh, if butter or ghee, uh, you know, organic, things like that. It's, it's not about eating, eating meat from factory farms. And there's no question that's horrible for, for your body, but well, particularly with the chicken and the pork. But I, I do think that um, from a kind of fairness standpoint, people who really can't afford the higher grade of beef, most beef spends three quarters or more of its life on a field somewhere. That's why when you drive across the country, you see little cows doubting the landscape because the, there's a system where you finish them in these feedlots. And so if I were a poor person and was eating, partic- picking between Cheerios and the beef in the, in the, at Walmart, I would go with the beef anyway. <laughs> so yeah. To meat is not usually better. Yeah, well, I think our our CAFOs are contributing to so many horrific things, it's and a and it's a big and problem. just I don't want to get off target here, but the fake meats—that's a whole problem. You know, I've done. Several- I wrote, wrote a blog post about that because I'm I'm worried that people don't realize what it is they're eating. When yeah, they're yeah, me too. Companies. Me too. So I was definitely, um, I've been in this area of trying to promote sustainable agriculture for the sake of public health for a very long time. I was the first person and maybe the only one at a medical school to get an agriculture grant to study the local producers in my state who were doing direct sales so that I could create a customer resource. So you could find food that you know exactly how it was raised. You would know right. if they docked the tails, right. what they did to the field, how to, you know, what the farmers, you know, to connect. I felt strongly that we have to connect consumers to the producer directly. Yes. And yes. so I've been interested in that for 20 years. Great. Um, so I'm, I'm with you there, but I just think that to overemphasize that you can't have 
beef that's available to you. If that's what you can afford, it's you're better off buying beef and cooking it yourself than going to McDonald's or some of these other fast food restaurants that provide chicken and other things that are, those are the particularly a concern as kind of big corporate foods versus buying just a pack of ground beef that you don't know how grass finished it was or not. It's a better choice than yeah. what most people are eating. Yeah, and so We don't want to make healthy eating completely an elitist activity. Yeah. Well, I know the elite would love, love that statement that, you know, you, if only the, the wealthy can eat organic and that is not true. That's um, not true. It's, it's not true. It, it is not true. And I work with people all the time on the costs and I've done cost comparison, yeah. but anyway, let's Absolutely. get back to, let's get back. I to just, that. I just don't think that we a hundred percent strict isn't always human. No. I want people to feel like no. if anywhere they're willing to do better, please do better. Just keep leaning towards improving. If you can't get to hundred percent grass fed all the time, just keep leaning towards making your food and your health a priority in your life. That's right. the most important thing is your intention continues to be maintained and you don't feel discouraged by perfectionistic goals. That's my right. And, own. and I think part of the problem uh, for many people is Okay, so you got Gundry saying no lectins. You're you're saying you know high oxalates is an issue, uh, and you have so many people telling us what we can't eat, and that I I just think that people are very frustrated, and I understand why, because it's like, well, what can we eat? You know, I've heard that quite a bit, and. I don't there's there's still plenty of food to eat. You know, I work with people. Uh, that's a, but that's exactly why I just wanted to add that caveat. Like if you can't get 100% grass fed, it's okay. There's still food you can eat. Like don't yeah. don't lock yourself out of your real choice that there are choices to be had. Well, there's more there's more uh, pesticides and herbicides on uh, vegetables than I interviewed a gentleman from the Center for Food Safety and he was uh, doing studies, and they found that if you if you just went to organic vegetables, and that was the only thing organic in your diet, you would reduce your chemical pesticide, herbicide, toxic load by about eighty percent. So, this is a, an empowering message that people need to yes, know. This yes. really, and it's not just protecting you; it's protecting. Right everything in that field and all the babies drinking yeah. from the wells near those farms. I mean, the way we're treating our land is if the land didn't matter by spraying mm -hmm. chemicals all in our soil and our water, our waterways. Uh, to me, voting for a world that's clean and safe for humans is what you do in addition to protecting yourself. Absolutely. You many benefits from deciding to choose organic. Well, one of the things I liked about your book when I first started reading, I thought, oh, my God, I'm I'm in trouble here. I'm eating a lot of these oxalates. <laughs> you have you have some charts and graphs and you you break it down. So it's pretty simple for people to understand if they're eating high oxalate diets or not. And you offer some alternatives and how to, let's say, what is your number for the average number for what you want to stay under in oxalates a day? What's that number? 
Probably about 150 milligrams. Okay. And you, you, I think in this one uh, chart, you show how the diet didn't look bad to me, but it's, you're eating a thousand milligrams. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was milligrams or how times it's milligrams. Yeah. 8,000 is a whole gram, right? That's like eight times your tolerance your inborn tolerance. Yeah. And you probably can do that every day starting at, you know, age five. Uh, I mean, it's easy to do it nowadays. Yeah. And you can it's- be on a junk food diet doing that with your Pringles and your peanuts and your potato chips and your chocolates. Yeah. Almonds is one that I don't eat a lot of almonds, but I know a lot of people, I am gluten-free. I, I just, for some reason, don't eat a lot of almonds. I like macadamia nuts. And I think those are the lowest oxalate nut, aren't they? Or They're, they're pretty low. They are of the true nuts are probably the lowest one. Yes. Yeah. But look how many people are buying gluten-free products and cassava flour, almond flour, lots of oxalates in those. And even arrowroot that's in those products. How about tapioca? That's high. Mm -hmm. Well, tapioca is cassava, basically. It's cassava, and it's not really a starch. It's really just dehydrated cassava. Like potato starch doesn't have a lot of oxalate, even though potatoes do, because it's a true extract of just the, the starch. But with tapioca starch, it's really just tapioca and it retains the oxalate in it. So a certain amount of refinement lowers oxalate in some foods too, which is nice to know. So if you are eating out and at an Asian restaurant and they use peanut oil, that's fine because oils don't contain the water soluble oxalate. Oxalate is repelled by the oil fraction. It hangs out in the water part. So when you make an oil, you don't have oxalate. So there's that flexibility too. And it, it, there is plenty to eat. And that is the the big issue in my mind. There's so much, don't eat this. And so much fear mongering. People are really nervous about eating. And they're they food. are, they are it's really unfortunate stress that I would not want to be contributing to whatsoever. But if you want to really get off the physiologic stress, this is a great path to finding peace and harmony in your own head and heart, because it, it really messes with your nervous system. You know, it's a neurotoxin and you can become... Uh, you can get panic disorder and sleep problems and lots of problems with your mood from eating oxalate. So there's avoiding the issue won't help you lower your stress. So we have to face the facts of, of nature and be willing to say, you know what, I need to rethink what's okay to eat. And there is plenty to eat. And (laughs) it's just uh, a learning curve because we're attached to these foods, your blackberries and my sweet potatoes. When I first went on the diet, like, oh, I have to give up my sweet potatoes. And then I decided, well, the kind of oxalates and sweet potatoes, that, that's not really bothering me, you know, because you can't tell that it's working initially because you're still high in oxalates. So you don't necessarily get immediate and lasting relief for quite a long time because you're still full of oxalates. So it's confusing too. So there may be a slight kind of unmotivating process in the beginning if you're not well-informed, which is one reason I felt it was essential to have a book out there. And don't we as Americans in particular want instant results? Oh boy, do we ever. Instant gratification and instant results. And if we don't get it right away, we're like, oh, that doesn't work. And easy ones too. You know, easy, yeah. honestly, the majority of people don't care about their health and nutrition behaviors. They just want to know what doctor to call when they get into trouble later and have somebody give them a drug or a surgery, you know, they're curing cancer. So I don't have to worry about if I get cancer because they'll cure me when I get it. That's really the predominant attitude, which is too bad. Yeah, it is. Cause it's 
to me, it's about quality of life. Exactly. Ask anybody who's sick what their quality of life is, and it's it's not very good. So I want to learn more about the the crystals. I want to I want to understand that further. Good, good, because it is very confusing. Actually, it took me a long time to figure out the biochemistry and like, what are we talking about? We're talking soluble oxalates. What is that? We're talking insoluble oxalates. What's that? Oxalic acid, oxalic salts. You know, it's all very confusing because oxalic acid, this two carbon molecule is, can be an ion. So it's just floating around with its little negative charge in the fluid of your food and the fluid of the gut flowing between the cells, getting into your bloodstream. That's the, the little molecule and the ionic form is the one that easily gets into your bloodstream. The plants also build calcium oxalate crystals that have all these different shapes, including a long toothpick, very minuscule microscopic toothpick in sets of two and 300 in these little bundles in their cells, often designed as little soldier tools to protect seeds and things so that predators who are eating fruit don't actually digest the seeds. Mm. you know, because the seed is the important future of the plant. Right. So the crystals, we don't tend to probably absorb the crystals at any length, unless the stomach acid somehow helps to break them back down into oxalic acid. It's more likely that the crystals that we eat cause abrasion. It's known to cause tooth wear. They call it dental micro wear. And so that abrades the teeth. It abrades the mucosal lining of the mouth, throat, stomach, and so on. Those little arrow or toothpick shaped crystals are designed to puncture cells two cells deep, but the mucosal lining of your intestines is just one cell deep. So you can get a fair amount of inflammatory and tissue damage in theory. Are you talking about like the epithelial lining of the gut? Exactly. Okay. You know, it's so interesting. I just have to say this. You're familiar, I'm sure, with glyphosate. Yes. Okay. Which is also a mineral key leader. And it binds, you know, which chelator means it binds the minerals and makes them unavailable. So, so certain nutrients in glyphosate for sure, like calcium and manganese and things like that get bound so that they're not available and glyphosate pokes holes in the gut and, you know, can create then a cytokine storm and, and all of that. So, 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 so this is also interesting that, the oxalate can do a very similar thing. And interestingly, the um, Monsanto, the company that makes made glyphosate originally, they sold it off to Bayer or whatever. Yeah, my listeners um, are very aware of all of this. When I, they I, renewed their patent, mm-hmm. the way they updated the formulation to renew the patent was to add oxalate to the glyphosate because oxalate helps the glyphosate stick to the plants. So the newest form in the last 15, 20 years of glyphosate is actually oxalate and glyphosate together. Is it, is it have a name like AMPA or does it have I'd have another... to go back and look at the pattern. I bet it, I bet it does because it's a surfactant and th- this is fascinating to me because that's one of my expertise is glyphosate and it actually helps it kind of, it's kind of sticky Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Professor Seralini, who has been studying Roundup and glyphosate and stuff, he found that with these surfactants, it made the glyphosate formula way more toxic and way yes. more harmful. So it, we could be talking about oxalates. Yes. 
That's fascinating. I'm going to have to look that up too. I can send you that information because it just shows that oxalate is so useful and we've been putting it to use in many places in, in industry. We're also using oxalate in theory. I don't know if it's being used really in practice yet to rinse produce to help it last longer. Are we talking about the appeal? Product? No, I don't, I don't yeah. know if it, I haven't looked at the ingredients in appeal. Okay. Oh, I have. I have. But um, I've interviewed an expert on that. But yes. uh, and I'm, I'm not going to go into that. And if anybody wants to know more about appeal, do a search on my website and you can learn more. Excellent. They also use oxalate, you know, just to test blood glucose levels, right? Because oxalate penetrates the red blood cells and binds the magnesium. So the red blood cell or the cells generally that are in that blood sample stop using glucose. So you freeze the blood's picture of glucose in it. When you draw a blood sample and you put in a little vial that has oxalate in it, it stops them from generating energy and therefore you preserve the glucose level. This is the one of the many biological effects of oxalate is it interferes with enzymes in your energy production. Wow. What else um, is our oxalates in that we may not be familiar with? I mean, the book lists a whole bunch of stuff and it's just, it's so fa- such fantastic information, but just for our listeners, what are some of the other things? So we did talk about almonds, which are the most toxic food out there. I highly yeah. recommend people find something else to eat other than almonds, almond milk, almond flour, almond, everything, almond desserts, <laughs> please stop the madness. Cashews and peanuts would be the three worst of the nuts. Nuts are generally not so good. Seeds aren't so good. Chia and hemp and sesame really high in oxalate. So I would just quit the chia bowls big time. They, Pum- they pumpkin good. seeds. Okay. Pumpkin seeds are very low, very Yay. low. Yay. Yeah. That's a win for me. Definitely sprout them though, because again, it's a lectin issue and phytates and so on. If you sprout them, they're much more digestible. Yeah, if you I have a really serious digestive issue. And, and if you've been eating a lot of oxalates, chances are your gut's not a happy place. Even a sprouted pumpkin seed may be a little harsh. So it doesn't mean just because it's low oxalate and you've handled some of these known toxins like lectins, it still doesn't necessarily mean it works for you personally. You know, so everybody right, has to keep right. experimenting with what's really going to make their tummy happy and the rest of their body function well. So then there's things like the whole pomegranate fruit, the seeds and the skin. Love but them. if you do the juice, you can have some of the juice because it's much lower. The oh. fruit juices are much lower. Oranges test sort of on the high side, but orange juice has like no oxalate in it. Kiwi are really high. Star fruit is deadly high. But, you know, in, in the U.S., we don't eat a lot of star fruit. But it's used like spinach as a superfood in Southeast Asia and Brazil. And people literally drop dead from kidney failure from starfruit juice. Like it's pretty toxic. Wow. It comes with other plant toxins too that helps the oxalate be toxic. Turmeric, whole root turmeric is high, but the curcumin extract is not. But it's the everybody's going all oh, whole foodie. So they'll sell you like a, a, a pint or a gallon of whole root turmeric powder and people start stirring it in everywhere mm-hmm. so what we're else? growing turmeric are you i guess yeah. you're in california so you can do that <laughs> yeah in southern cal but it's interesting spinach is one of the highest right spinach the only thing really worse than spinach is swiss chard and beet greens 
Okay. Uh, well, our spinach didn't come up. That's a blessing. Yes, it uh, is. It's a blessing. <laughs> I don't really eat a lot of spinach. I wanted to ask you, uh, I know buckwheat is high. Yes. And I happen to love buckwheat. I buy a, because I don't eat gluten, I found a company that makes uh, uh, sourdough buckwheat bread, just two ingredients. Now, mm. if it's fermented, would that make a difference? Fermenting makes a difference with something like tea, which might have 20 milligrams per cup and you ferment it into say kombucha and you're down to seven or eight milligrams per cup. So that's a really nice change. Okay. But if you're working with something like buckwheat, which might have 700 milligrams per small slice of bread and you get it down to 400 milligrams, that's still ridiculous. Okay. Makes sense? Yeah. So yeah. these really high, and so buckwheat is the same family that rhubarb is in. Mm -hmm. And rhubarb is the classic high oxalate food. And that's because the whole discovery of the power of diet to cause oxalate illness was during the rhubarb craze of the 18, early 1800s. They were in England, it was all the thing to have rhubarb tarts and they were forcing them early in greenhouses so they could make it for Christmas season. So it became this special Christmas treat because they had all this horse poop on the street and you could bring the horse poop out to the, the greenhouses and make it nice and hot and make the plants think that it was May when it was really December and you could provide rhubarb tarts. And so there was this season where the wealthy could afford these little tarts and they would get sick on oxalates. And that's where we really started seeing this dietary oxalate in the first diagnostic label for dietary oxalate poisoning was officially made in the early 1840s. Yeah. What about coffee? Coffee is very low in oxalate, practically none, Thank somewhere you. between two and four milligrams per cup. Uh, yeah. But if you look at the literature, you'll see titles of articles claiming coffee is high in oxalate. <laughs> Like even researchers can't understand their own research. Yeah. I think one reason they made that mistake is because we report oxalate per hundred grams of the substance. So per hundred grams of dried instant coffee powder, there's a lot of oxalate, but nobody uses a hundred grams in a day. They use half a gram or one gram to make a cup of coffee. But the researchers are thinking, oh, that's a lot per hundred grams of dry dehydrated coffee, instant coffee powder. It's so silly that they're not thinking, well, that's not how it's used. So you only want to call something high if it's consumed and it's all about right. size. Right. But even researchers can't get that straight in their head. So the researchers are the source of a lot of confusion. Another thing, how about dairy? Dairy is excellent because it, the antidote to oxalates is more calcium in the diet. And the, the richest source of calcium in the diet is milk and real dairy, like from cows. Yeah. I, <laughs> I call various things milks now and they get confused. That yeah. That's not actually. We're not talking about almond milk or, or oat yeah, milk. The, or, the juice of plants is not yeah. milk. Yeah. Well, I don't do dairy from cows. I do dairy from goats. And uh, I do really well with, uh, and I'm lucky enough to have raw goat milk and raw goat milk cheese and things like that. But so those are really low. 
Yeah, low, very low. The dairy food is not only very low, but it's offering the minerals that we need. Oxalate is causing a depletion of calcium yeah. and other minerals in the body. So a depletion of probably iron, magnesium, potassium, and maybe even trace minerals. And because of this high oxalate diet, you can cause severe mineral deficiencies. And without a high mineral diet, especially high calcium diet, your absorption rate, that is how much from the food gets into your blood is much higher. So when we start taking dairy out of the diet and then we go on gluten-free as well, and that often happens in the same stroke, like they'll say, oh, looks like you've got gut problems or maybe familial problems. Let's get you off dairy and, and gluten. And you get off the protective calcium and you go on the buckwheat and the quinoa and the arrowroot and the cassava, and you're just taking yourself down this toxic path that can lead to some serious problems. But there is a way to do it because yeah. there's some people like me that cannot do cow's milk. I mean, I, I don't, I can't, I, we get raw cow's milk and cream and butter, but I don't touch the cream and butter despite my adoration of it because it, for me, it increases my back pain. So that's how I know Yeah. if food doesn't is, if a food is increasing inflammation, I can feel it with my back pain or some other symptoms. So that's how I judge Right. So for me, I'm very cautious. I have just small amounts of cheese that I can tolerate and not every day because I need to keep my inflammation down because I have this chronic crystal in my tissues problem that keeps my immune system busy. And this is part of the problem. If you let little particulate nanocrystals and microcrystals form in your eyes and your thyroid gland and your tendons and your bones and bone marrow, not only do they decay those tissues and make your bones weak and make your tendons stiff and unhappy and give you bone spurs and give you low thyroid or hyperthyroid or both and give you a need for glasses or cataracts or so on. It's not only degenerating the tissues with these crystals, but it's creating a stimulus for the uh, immune system to kick in, kick in over and over again, trying to combat and potentially remove the crystals. And you get a little bit into that when you remove oxalate from the diet, you turn on this inflammation process that removes crystals from your tissues, which you kind of need, but you don't need chronic inflammation. So those of us who have dutifully eaten healthy have created chronic inflammatory problems because we have a chronic crystal disorder in our tissues. Wow, that is just so fascinating. In the book, you have how to eat a low oxalate diet. And I think think the resistance is going to be for people. Well, number one, this is an inconvenient truth. Even for me, who is who is a who is a foodie and and really yep. works I, I work at my on my health quite a bit. And for the most part, I've feel fairly healthy. But once in a while, I do have, uh, I notice some gut stuff come up. And so I guess my question is, how can the oxalates affect the gut? Can you give us a little bit more about that? Because, you know, I'm all about, you know, having a healthy gut, healthy brain, very connected. It turns out that there's multiple ways that oxalate is messing with our intestinal tract and our digestion generally. So there is that abrasion problem where you can create inflammation and, and gut damage from the crystals themselves. The acid is affecting cells and their function. The um, large intestine also 
participates in the excretion of oxalate from the body, especially if you're going acidic and your kidneys are stressed from too much oxalate. So they're also having to traffic it coming back out of the body. But oxalate can cause a change in your microbiome and cause a bit of dysbiosis because it can cause certain kind of die-offs and promote the wrong things growing because it creates an acidity in the body that allows candida and, and these sort of opportunistic um, commensal things that are normally kept in check. They can get out of hand. You can kill off the bacteria that like to eat oxalate because there are bacteria that somehow manage to live on oxalate or can consume it. And that can, they can kind of die from a Thanksgiving, you might call it. like too, eating too much oxalate is not good for them. So you can get a dysbiosis going on. You can also cause a, a neurotoxicity. That's one of the key things that oxalate does is it messes with the calcium and the other electrolytes in and around the cells. And you get electrolyte disturbances that very much disturb nerve function and nerves get stuck in this kind of hyper excitability state, we call it. And hyperexcitable nerves makes it not only hard to sleep, but can give you tremors and twitches and things like hiccups. It can cause reflux. It can cause problems with sphincters. So you don't have um, competent sphincter, say at the end of the esophagus or between the small and large bowel or at the rectal area, you can have, you can have fecal incontinence. I had one client who had eight years of fecal accidents she said it would happen eight to 10 times every day where she oh would have goodness. an accidental BM. Unbelievable. And she wouldn't always know what had happened because she had no sensory feedback because the nerves were so paralyzed in her rectum that she didn't couldn't feel anything. She was both simultaneously numb and simultaneously having spastic rectum and colon that was you know, shooting this stuff out of her without even sensory feedback. So you can get things like uh, dysmotility disorders because of the nerves causing random spasms of muscles. You might have your peristaltic, peristalsis muscular activity be disrupted in a way where the direction of the movement of the contents of your gut is in the wrong direction. <laughs> things back up and you end up with bloating in the, um, Studies of people dying from star fruit poisoning, they went not only the human case studies where hiccups would be the last symptom before the person died because of the neurotoxicity causing spastic diaphragm. They saw the same phenomenon in the rats where they do the repeat the study giving rats star fruit juice and see what fraction in the star fruit juice was causing the death they would see these hiccup attacks right before the rat died from the oxalate poisoning from the star fruit juice. And I can tell you, this creates bloating, belching, all kinds of indigestion kind of feelings. And I personally had it because <laughs> I got into the sweet potatoes every day thing and I would have Swiss chard twice a week in addition to that. So for years at bedtime, I would have attacks of bloating and belching and hiccups that were so painful. I felt like I was breaking ribs. Little did I know that I was a rat in a bad study about to die. <laughs> like wow. I was having this level of neurotoxicity. So you have lots of ways. We have direct effect on the epithelial cells. You have effect on the microbiome. You have effect on the nerves and the muscles that run the whole motility process of digestion. Wow. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Sally, how can it affect the gallbladder? So many people ha are having gallbladder issues. 
Great question. I wish we had more research on this because it's so profound that when we absorb oxalate from food, it goes into what we call hepatic circulation, which delivers everything that you absorb from your digestive tract to your liver immediately. So it's a very short run from your small intestines to your liver, all this oxalate you're absorbing over the course of eight or 10 hours after your meal. So the liver cells are being completely flushed with oxalate. And obviously some trace of it's being left behind, but it's usually in some kind of lipid crystal that doesn't crystallize into chunks like kidney stones. And the bile is helping to clean out the liver in different ways. The bile is one of the major excretions from the liver. And I believe strongly that the literature says enough about the fact that this sludge that accumulates in the gall duct can contain a lot of oxalate. So a certain degree of gallstones and gall sludge contains oxalate. Yeah, We see this when you go on the diet. What we often see is there is some phase where the gallbladder kind of stops working for a little while and your fat digestion goes to heck and you get these yellow floaty stools. And I think that's part of the process of the gallbladder's recovery from some of this and its attempt to undo the gunk that's been developing from our Swiss chard and sweet potatoes. So what about alcohol, uh, like wine or or spirits or or beer, huh? do they contain oxalates? They're very low in oxalate. This is sort of a sin diet. You can have your uh, coffee and your bacon and your alcohol and are all low <laughs> oxalate. <laughs> but um, beer has a little bit, you know, like maybe five to eight milligrams of oxalate in a, in a beer. So it's not anything to be too worried about. The problem with alcohol is that because oxalate has been flooding your liver after every meal for potentially years, your poor liver is not a really great detoxer. And the last thing you really need right now is to have to detox ethyl alcohol while you're trying to recover from the oxalate damage to your liver. So I usually advise people to take a chill pill for about three years on alcohol if they can. That's a long time for people. I thought you were going to say three weeks. (laughs) No, but you can, there's ways to do it. And, and, but, and there may be times when suddenly, like for me, I'm always been a lightweight with alcohol because of all this liver damage from my healthy diet. And I went through a phase for about a year where I could drink two or three glasses of wine and feel no effect, which for me, Normally it's two or three sips of wine and I'm already feeling kind of gross from it. But for a while there, my liver was just doing dandy with it. But then it, again, it, you know, there's lots of different things that affect this, but alcohol is not, even though it's a liver poison, I think some of these plant poisons are even more important to consider. I'd rather you drank your wine than drank your almond milk. <laughs> That's interesting. I absolutely know that our livers are on overload from all the toxins that are in the food and that are basically environmental toxins that are everywhere. And fatty liver disease is just on the rise, even in children. And I'm not saying the oxalates are the reason why, but it's there are there's so many contributors to this. So we overtax our liver for a long period of time. Something's got to give. It's so true. And the liver is such a hero. We don't realize how much it controls our metabolism and helps us function in every way. It's processing all the food that comes into your body and helping you do everything you need to live. It's really profoundly important And it's so interesting to think about liver health because we don't much. 
And the studies don't really look at oxalates effect on liver, but you can look at individual case situations where going on a low carb, low oxalate diet can reverse liver related things and hormone related things. And I have a neighbor who has alcoholic fever in stage four. He was given six months to live about five years ago. And I told him to quit eating spinach and eat mostly meat. And he's making 80% of his diet is cottage cheese and eggs because his teeth are falling out. Oh, and wow. He's reversed his fatty liver disease. He hasn't stopped drinking. He still drinks yeah. a couple quarts of cheap vodka every week, at least. Oh God. And he's reversing his liver disease, even though he's still drinking. That's very interesting. Very little sugar and very little carbs and very little plants. Yeah. Wow. So it is fascinating. Like we don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> well, the field of nutrition and health, it changes every day. And I feel like interviewing people like you and learning something new to consider. I, I'm not telling our listeners, you absolutely have to do this, but it's just another piece to the puzzle that they might, may want to take a look at if, if they're having symptoms. And you have a whole section in your book about symptoms and, and what to do about it. So I, I, I love learning all this new information and I'm actually going to really be thinking about in my personal diet, cutting back on some of this stuff. And now I really like that rice is okay. And I knew that brown rice is, is an issue. I think brown rice is an issue for most people. And I eat white basmati rice when I eat rice. And it's not that often anyway. But am I correct? It's low in oxalates? It is the lowest oxalate grain that you can eat. Yeah. So rice flour, white rice flour. It's it's not as low as rice starch. And unfortunately, rice starch came off the market when they got rid of talic and personal care products and now the rice yeah. starch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't even buy it anymore. You used to be able to go to the Asian stores or wherever and get rice starch. Rice flour is certainly lower than wheat flour and is a is a decent choice for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are foods to eat. You know, once we learn where the oxalates are and realize there's still a whole lot of foods because it's a fairly small list. It's just a list of like kind of cool cats in our heads. Like these foods that are high oxalate have this current status, Yeah, which is why the title of the book is like trying to like shake us out of our complacency about our big ideas. Really, I think if we could go back to the big idea that the way we need to center our nutritional thinking is about what's truly essential in the nutrient department that provides for growth, healthy reproduction, long lifetime maintenance of your tissues and function so that you maintain your independence and well-being your whole life. And you know, that's really protein, essential fatty acids, minerals and vitamins and some of this other stuff of like fairy dust that if we throw more you know, kind of undefined phytonutrients at things that somehow we're going to be above average and it's not working out. Yeah. Wow. That's, this is such great information. So I think we're just about out of time, but um, this has been wonderful, Sally, and I highly recommend her book. Again, it's called Toxic Superfoods, How Oxalate Overload is Making You Sick 
and how to get better. So I love that you put that in the title because it's not doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom. It's like, there's a way out of this. And the way out of it is just modifying a little bit of what you eat. And everybody is different. So people can experiment. Uh, I eat some lectins and I don't really think I have an issue with lectins or maybe that's an inconvenient truth because I grow the best yummy tomatoes and I want my tomatoes, <laughs> but people get to choose what they're going to eat. And, and there's plenty of food out there that will work for your body. That's certainly true. And lectins are doable. You can work around them. There's ways yeah. to seed your tomatoes, peel your tomatoes, and you're good to go. High right. cook your squash, you're good to go. Peel your cucumber. That's an easy one. Yeah. Oxalate, not so much. You can't cook it out. You can't oh, yeah. That's it. it. Let's let's finish with that. You cannot cook it out, right? You cannot. So you're when you cook your spinach, you'll have a little half cup portion of spinach. But you know, it started off as like seven cups of spinach. <laughs> right. So right. even though you may have boiled it, which is most people don't do, they'll steam it or stir fry it. But if you were to boil it for 10 minutes and end up with this mush, you'd end up with at least as much, if not more oxalate than if you had turned it into a salad because you wouldn't have eaten seven cups when you ate a salad. So even though technically it's a little bit lower when you cook it, you are making it more bioavailable and you're eating a denser amount. So it's yeah. more about the density of the food than it is like, is it cooked or not? So yeah, cooking isn't going to help us. Fermentation helps only in a couple of cases. Uh, you do want to boil your broccoli. There are little ways. And so I try to cover that in the book to get into that. Let's learn about oxalates. Let's learn about what we can and can't do. But it is your decision to take a deeper look, learn, learn to choose, being patient with the process of growing in this direction and, and not dropping the golden egg because you can feel better. My whole message is if you want either your body or your brain to, to perform better, this is an important area because you can get a lot more out of both your body and brain if you don't mess up its electrolytes and damage your gut, make yourself poisoned with crystals. Okay, well said. Well, thank you, Sally. And uh, thank you, listeners, for being here and learning something new with me. And we'll be back soon with another great show. Mm -hmm.